Welcome to the Take Two podcast, where we discuss highly debated biblical topics. We ask questions you may be afraid to ask, so strap on your safety helmet because today we are tackling the topic of biblical prophecies. What happens when you mix a sharp teenager with a Bible professor who happens to be her mom? You get the Take Two podcast with Emma and Carmen Imes. Special thanks to Prairie College for sponsoring this episode and to you for joining us. Okay, so the book of Revelation has a lot of ground to cover about Mm -hmm. prophecies, the end of time, all this like super scary Mm -hmm. stuff that people have a lot of different opinions on. Indeed. So we're going to start with prophecies today. Um, How can we tell which prophecies are literal and which prophecies are metaphorical? Good question. The first thing I want to say is that, ironically, the book of Revelation is meant to comfort people who are undergoing persecution. So we don't tend to think of the book of Revelation as comforting or reassuring because it does have a lot of really disturbing imagery and it does describe the destruction of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. And so why is this comforting? Well, Christians who were experiencing persecution are supposed to read it and and see from the book of Revelation that God is actually in charge of the unfolding of history, that the things happening in their world are not a surprise to God, but that he has things in hand and he's using it all towards a, a, a predetermined purpose. So the imagery that we find in the book of Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament prophets. And if we don't understand the Old Testament prophets, then we're liable to misread the book of Revelation. So I have a few tips that I can give you that would help us understand how the two relate to each other. So the first thing to know about Old Testament prophecy is that it's not as predictive as people imagine. Actually, if you read the prophets carefully, only 7% of the prophetic books has anything to do with something that is going to happen in the future. 93% of it is referring to the prophet's own time period or or looking back at the past. Prophets did a lot of things, but... But the core thing they did was announce the word of God to their generation and call them to repentance, call them to live faithfully with God. So if you're thinking of prophecy as primarily predictive, you'll need to adjust your thinking on that. Okay. The second thing to know is that the Old Testament prophets are almost entirely written in poetry. And if you've read poetry before in English class or wherever else, you know that it uses a lot of vivid metaphors to get the Mm. point across. And so we always need to be asking when we're reading these metaphors, what is the point that the author is trying to get across? Like, What is the thing about that image that relates to the topic that's being talked about? The third thing uh, to know about Old Testament prophecy is that some of it, not all of it, is apocalyptic. So that's a technical word. Wait, hold on. What does that mean? So you might have heard the term apocalypse to refer to like the end of the world. People talk about the apocalypse or there's movies out there, video games, I'm sure about the apocalypse or zombie apocalypse, whatever. Usually people use that word to talk about the end of the world. But in fact, that's not what it means. In the Bible, the word apocalypse refers to an unveiling or an uncovering of something. So it's not the end of the world, it's the 
pulling back the curtain and being able to see things for how they really are. So could that possibly happen at the end of time? Yes, and I think that's why the association gets made with the end of the world because the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. That's actually its name in Greek. It's the apocalypse or the unveiling. And it is talking about a lot of devastating things that are gonna happen in the future that bring an end to life as we know it. Okay. But in those moments, the revelation is that God is truly king and that he's bringing an end to the false kingdoms of this world. So if we're reading apocalyptic literature, we need to know how it works. And part of what makes this part of the Bible so hard for people to understand is that we actually don't have an equivalent in our culture. We don't have a genre of apocalyptic literature that works the same way. Now, maybe you've read dystopian novels or whatever, you know, things that, that explore the end of all things or, the, or a society that's kind of come unglued, mm -hmm. that's different than what we mean by apocalyptic literature in the Bible. In the Bible, it's um, using fantastic, bizarre images, usually being communicated by an angel in a vision or a dream that are supposed to tell people um, to, to hold fast and be faithful until the end. And the closest thing that we have in our culture to apocalyptic is actually political cartoons. So if you've ever paged through a newspaper or seen online um, political cartoons, usually there are animals that represent different countries, okay. right? So, yeah. so if you've seen one before, you may know that if you see a bear in a political cartoon, it represents Russia. If you see an eagle, it's the United States. If you see a beaver, it's representing Canada. If you see a dragon, it's China. And these political cartoons don't usually come with like a little key that tells you who and what everything no, is. No, they don't. Too bad, um, because they assume that you are participating in, you're, you're an knowledgeable reader, and so you've seen these symbols be used over and over again. You know which political party is represented by which animal or which color. And so it, it's its own form of discourse about politics. And in the same way, in the Bible, apocalyptic literature is its own form of talking about the kingdoms of the world and how they relate to God's rule. So I'll give you one example um, that we're, we're going to see it in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, which is apocalyptic, and okay. the book of Revelation in the New Testament. And it'll illustrate uh, another point, which is that Revelation is always drawing on Old Testament imagery. John, in his vision, he's, the whole book is a vision that he had while he's alone on this island in exile. And all the visions he sees bring pieces and images from these other Old Testament books and reuse them in creative ways. And so we'll see how that works with Daniel chapter 7. So this is a crazy dream that Daniel has with four beasts. And I'll just kind of run through some highlights. So he, in verse 3 it says, Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. So I told you it was bizarre, mm -hmm. right? Lions don't have wings. But here's a lion with eagle's wings. And then the second beast in verse 5 is like a bear, and it's got ribs in its mouth. Oh, lovely. Yes. And then in verse 6, we get another beast that looks like a leopard with four wings on its back. And it has four heads, by the way. Wow, it can't just be simple. So turns out people had crazy dreams way back then, just like we have crazy dreams now. And the last one is a fourth beast in verse 7, terrifying 
terrifying and frightening and very powerful with large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts and had 10 horns. So not the dream you'd probably want to have at night. And nope. we would find that disturbing. Daniel finds it really disturbing. In verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit and disturbed. My mind disturbed me. And so he, asked a, he asks this angelic figure, can you explain to me what this was? And the angel gives him the interpretation. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. So that's in a nutshell. There's more in Daniel 7. But let's look at what happens to that vision when John has it in the book of Revelation. Yeah. So in Revelation 13, he see verse 1, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. So if we're living in the first century and we know our Old Testament, we'd be like, oh, a beast coming out of the sea. I know it's this happening. beast. It's <laughs> happening, right? Because the, the beasts in Daniel's vision represent four successive kingdoms. Uh, the, he's living in the time of the Persian rule. And after that is the Greeks and then the Romans. And so he's watched different kingdoms rise and fall, or he... He watches a vision of the kingdoms that will rise and fall. So by John's day, Rome is in charge, and they're all wondering, when will this kingdom end? And so John's having a vision about a beast coming out of the sea, and everybody's imagining, oh, this is the last beast. Mm. And now we're going to see it finally destroyed. But listen to the, how the beast is described. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns. The beast resembled a leopard, but had feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion. So what we're seeing here is like a conglomerate image that takes pieces of each of the four beasts and rolls them into one. Are we sure he didn't go through a wardrobe? Like we're getting some <laughs> Narnia vibes here. This does seem like fantasy, doesn't it? Yeah. And, but John knows when he sees an image with, when he, but John knows when he sees a vision with a beast in it, that it's representing kings and kingdoms. Right, it's not an actual beast. Right, so we shouldn't be like watching, you know. Ten horns poking up right. out of the ground. <laughs> we don't need to like find aliens that look like this or watch the trail cam to see if one is coming out, yes. right? Um, and so the same thing is happening in this passage that happens in Daniel, and that is that the, the community of faith, the saints, are the ones who overcome this beast. And so by the end of the chapter, um, it's calling on people not to worship the beast, but instead to have God's name written on their foreheads to show that they are allegiant to him and not to the beast. So it's calling on people. This is why it's encouraging. It's calling on people to remain faithful to the one true God in the face of other options, which in their case would have been powerful world systems represented by this beast in his vision. So if we want to understand Revelation, we've got to understand Daniel and the other prophetic and apocalyptic texts in the Old Testament. That is a lot of good information mm -hmm. to think about. And you can think about it for the next few minutes, because when we come back, we're going to be talking about biblical prophecies that have not been fulfilled. All right. We'll see you then. And now a word from our sponsor, Prairie College.
I came here because I was hungry. Passions brewing in my blood. Purpose stirring in my bones, knowing I was made for more. Imperfect, searching for who I was, I had this unshakable sense that God had planted greatness inside of me that demanded to be nurtured. My heart bursting with desire to do something beautiful with my life for Jesus' sake. Here, my hunger met substance and depth, wisdom and direction, grew roots and took form. My passions took flight while my soul got grounded. My purpose got narrow while my horizons expanded. Now, my future is clear, my focus sharper, my calling precise, and hope, my anthem. In these past four years, I've traveled the world, seeing things I never could have imagined, witnessing real suffering and unspeakable beauty. I've felt the heart of God in the classroom and in the slums. I've discovered his voice through his word in unexpected ways. Now, resilient as I grow, become, triumph, and fail, I've experienced the power of community and being transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. What comes next is still a mystery. I can only see by the short light cast in front of me, a lamp unto my feet. But this place has given me everything I need to step forward, bold and confident. I'm ready to launch. Welcome back. So in the first part, we covered a lot of ground. Do you want to give a recap to our audience about what we talked about? Sure. So in the first part, we talked about how to read biblical prophecy. How do we know how to read the metaphors and images? I suggested that the Old Testament prophetic books are the source for the images that are in John's revelation in the last book of the New Testament, and that if we want to understand his book, we need to read theirs and understand how they work. Uh, we talked about apocalyptic literature and how it's like political cartoons. So what would you like to talk about next? Well, what about biblical prophecies and whether or not they've been fulfilled? Are there some that haven't been fulfilled? Are there any that will never be fulfilled? Yes, definitely there are prophecies that have not been fulfilled and will be. We're still waiting for God's final victory over sin, death, and evil. Jesus accomplished it at the cross, but it hasn't been fully realized yet. We're still waiting for Jesus' second coming. We're still waiting for God to establish his kingdom on earth. And so, yes, there are prophecies that haven't been fulfilled yet. More controversially, I would suggest that there are some prophecies that may never be fulfilled. Hold on. Prophecies in the Bible that aren't going to be fulfilled? Let me show you the passage that leads me to this conclusion. Um, this is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18. Jeremiah is being taught by God. God is giving him this special tutorial about how prophecy works and how he works. And he gives him an object lesson. So he asks Jeremiah to go down to a potter's house and they watch a potter making pots. And it says, he went down to the potter's house. I saw him working at the wheel, verse four, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. And then the Lord says, you know, I'm like this. It's, you're like the clay, I'm like the potter. And in verse seven, it says, if at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. 
And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. So basically he's saying he could change his mind depending on the people's actions. Yes, it seems to introduce to us this idea that God is dynamically related to us, that he doesn't declare a plan that's fixed and immovable, but he actually wants to relate with us. So yeah. he says, I'm going to do this, and he invites our response, and our response may actually change how that works out. That is really interesting. So one place people get into trouble with prophecy is when they assume that it's a prediction rather than an announcement. I don't think prediction, even, I've already told you that the prophetic Books in the Bible, only 7% of the time are talking about the future. Yeah. But I still don't think that the word prediction is the best way to describe that 7% that's future-oriented. If I predict what's going to happen next week, I could be right, I could be wrong. God is not making a prediction about what will happen. He's announcing what he plans to do, which yeah. is, has far more authority behind it. Mm -hmm. So an illustration I like to use in class is the syllabus for a class. In a, in a college class, when the professor hands out a syllabus, it's the plan for the semester. It says what we're going to talk about each day, what the assignments are, how much, how many points they're worth. That, um, that syllabus is not my prediction of how the semester is going to go. Yeah. It's my plan. And if at any time I decide, you know, I have put too much work on you, I need to lay off a bit, I could cancel an assignment, and that's not a failed prediction, that's a change of plans. I find that if I put more on the syllabus than we can possibly do, and then I, like, roll it back a little bit, then I'm everybody's favorite professor. So it's a yes. good trick. All right, so it's not going to work for us to go through the prophecies in the Bible and like check off all the ones that are done and then circle all the ones that haven't been done yet and then watch the newspapers to find out when they're going to happen. Newspapers? What are we in the 50s? <laughs> okay, then scroll through your newsfeed to find out when go. these things are going to happen because um, this is God's announcement to ancient people in an ancient context and there's a lot of time that's elapsed between then and now during which God could have dynamically changed his announcement. So do you have some examples of those we can look at? I think um, this, this will be controversial as well, but we haven't shied away from controversy in this series. <laughs> so we could talk about the future for the Jewish nation and for the land of Israel and for the temple. These are prophecies that some Christians are waiting on the edge of their seats to see fulfilled. And other Christians say, we're not waiting for that anymore because plans have changed. Yeah, so there are a lot of people I know personally right now that are saying, like, the Jews are, like, slowly coming back to Israel, the mm -hmm. Holy Land, mm -hmm. and so the end is near. Mm -hmm. Though, of course, people have been saying the end is near for a long time now. For 2,000 years, yes. people have been saying the end is near. In fact, pro tip, the New Testament authors all thought of themselves as living in the last days. They, wow. they clearly saw themselves like this is the end. We are now in the latter days. They refer to it in their books. They say that the prophecies from the Old Testament that refer to the last days are being fulfilled in their day. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And if you watch our creation video, and this is we live in an old earth, maybe it is like in proportion their last days. This is the last days. <laughs> All right, good thought. So we could talk about these controversial topics just briefly. Um, we don't have time to go into a ton of detail. I would first say um, that Jesus announced, so regarding the temple, 
Some people are waiting and waiting for a new temple to be rebuilt because after the exile it was rebuilt, but then it was destroyed in 70 AD. And so some are saying the, some of the Old Testament prophecies about the dimensions of the temple have never been fulfilled, particularly Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48 describe a temple that they say, well, we haven't ever had this temple yet, so we're still waiting for that one. Yeah. I would actually argue that Ezekiel's vision of the temple is not meant to be a literal temple. It's actually unbuildable. There are no vertical dimensions in the whole temple. He's measuring out length and width, but there's never instructions on height. So it's actually impossible to build it because you don't know how tall it's supposed to be. What I think is going on in Ezekiel is God saying, my plan is to restore my holy presence in your midst. Okay but not necessarily attaching it to a certain dimensions plan so of the temple. So it could be more like in our hearts than in a building? Well, I don't think, I don't know that Ezekiel would have thought that, but Jesus came along and said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And we're told in the New Testament that the temple he referred to was his body. So Jesus identifies mm. himself as the place where the presence of God fully dwells. The Holy Spirit is present in him. He is God in the flesh. And then the New Testament authors go on to talk about us as being built into a living temple. So if the Holy Spirit indwells us, if Jesus was the final sacrifice, we don't need to offer sacrifices anymore because he offered himself once and for all, then why would we need a temple again? Yeah. We don't need one. In fact, it's heretical to try to build one because we have Jesus, in fact, as the perfect sacrifice. And temples are the place where sacrifices are done. Yeah. So that would be that would be just one example, one controversial topic that I would say that prophecy from Ezekiel has not been fulfilled in the way some people expected it to be fulfilled. It's being fulfilled in a spiritual way through the building of, of Christ's church around the world. Yeah, that is a lot of really interesting dirt that we dug up today. Mm -hmm. um, I know you don't have any books for us today, but do you have other resources we can go to? Yes, one of my favorite resources, of course, is The Bible Project. They have some really great videos on these topics and a, and a podcast series. They've just finished a podcast series on apocalyptic literature. Um, which is really fantastic. So we'll put links in the description below to their video on the book of Revelation, their video on how to read biblical prophecy and how to read biblical apocalyptic. Super helpful. Yeah, that sounds helpful. We will also be sure to link ways you can get in touch with us and our social media platforms you can mm -hmm. follow us on. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Take Two Podcast. See you next time.